Hello, and welcome to episode 64 of Nerd Explosion. I'm your host, John Wintrub, and this week I have something a little different than what we usually do. Uh, my co-host Sean Clark is not with us because I am here with By the Horns comic writer, Marquisen Nasso. How are you doing today, Marquisen? I'm doing good, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, it's awesome to have you. I, I've been reading By the Horns for over a year now, and I literally picked it up just by chance. I read, I think um, it was Girl Talks Comics review of it back in like March, and it mm -hmm. piqued my interest because I'm a huge dark fantasy fan, and seeing the whole concept of a woman trying to take revenge on unicorns because of her husband seemingly being dead based off the initial premise and we weren't otherwise as the comic goes on, of course. Mm -hmm. um, what inspirations did you pull from for By the Horns? Because it seems to come from all different places. I know when I reviewed the first issue, it felt like it was a little similar to a Berserk or other kind of dark fantasy manga or Japanese storytelling that I've read, but with a lot of Western influence too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, the idea itself just came to me. I've, I've read a lot of fantasy, but it's mostly novels. So um, there's a little bit of, um, you know, old school sci-fi in there like Dune and Star Wars. And then um, there's definitely some video game influences in there like Final Fantasy. Uh, I grew up really loving RPG games. So, um, and you can see that with the travel maps and, uh, uh, all the different creatures and the way that Elodie and, and her friends stop at different places and maybe pick up some new weapons or supplies. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit of that in there as well. Um, but not really uh, manga. I haven't really read a lot of manga. Lone Wolf and Cub and Blade of the Immortal are like they're my two favorites. And I haven't really branched out uh, much beyond that. But yeah, I think it's just from a deep-seated love for, for science fiction. And um, my ideas always start off with something strange first. And I don't, I don't know what it's going to be, you know, what genre it's going to be until I start uh, working it out. Yeah. And how much you mentioned the creature designs, how much of that comes from uh, Jason's mind whenever he's drawing art onto the page and how much of it comes from you whenever you're writing. Right. Well, yeah. Well, um, for the creature designs, like uh, for the travel map, like I mentioned, um, we've done like, over 30 different creatures just for the maps. And some of them don't even actually appear in the issues aside from the map. And then there, of course, there's the additional creature designs um, that we do for the, the characters because most of uh, the characters in our book are creatures. They're anthropomorphic characters. There's not a lot of humans in, in the book. Right. Um, you have characters so, like Saiyan and Zoso and the yeah, unicorns yeah. and you have like Evelyn who was my personal favorite when I first started reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. such a creative idea to have a, a floating eyeball that is the most compassionate member of the group it's just an interesting <laughs> idea you it's it's kind of taking the idea of you don't expect the character that looks the most monstrous to be the nicest mm -hmm. member of the team yeah right? that was that was yeah that was by design um but yeah I you know it's all in my head to start um the characters, especially like the creatures on the map and stuff. But then uh, I'll tell Jason a lot of times, hey, you know, it's kind of a cross between this animal and this animal, you know, and then he'll uh, come up with something awesome, even better than what I what I imagined in my head. Um, and I write the descriptions for them and everything. When it comes to the main characters, you know, I kind of describe what I 
thought they should look like. Uh, but Jason and I work really closely together. So it's not like I just write a script and then he has to come up with the character designs for everything. It's we come up with the character designs together before we actually even do the book. So, um, you know, when I pitched him the, the idea for by the horns and talked a little bit about the characters, you know, we would meet for lunch or beers and then discuss what those characters might look like and uh, where they're from and what environments they'd be in and what they'd wear. And then, um, you know, Jason would take those notes and then start drawing. And then I would look at them and I might, you know, add some input until we shaped, you know, what the, the final form, if you will, of the characters uh, would be. So Jason does a lot of cool um, behind the scenes design stuff in the back of every issue too, where he shows the evolution of Elodie. Um, because the book originally was a straight fantasy book and then uh, changed my mind and added more sci-fi elements. So her design changed to, to suit that. Yeah, no, there aren't a whole lot of sci-fi fantasy stories nowadays that feel wholly unique. You get a lot of things that are either like trying way too hard to be like Star Wars, or I assume with how well the, uh, the new Dune movie did, we're probably going to see a lot of Dune replicas in the next couple of years. But by the horns, doesn't really feel like it's copying anything because it's combining so much into one story. You have all like the fancy creature designs and you have all the sci-fi elements, but it feels a lot more conventional fantasy than does sci-fi like Dune and Star Wars do, which makes it so that it feels like this new offset and not really like anything I've read before on top of how unique Elodie is as a protagonist as well. Cool. I appreciate that, John. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know if I set out to make it super unique. It's just that these are the characters um, that come to my mind. Right. And, um, you know, cause for me, uh, all my comics, it's really just, it's about the characters first. And, um, well, a lot of times I'll think of one idea, like the, for the original idea for by the horns was like, I want uh, somebody to rip off the horns of a unicorn, merge them together and, and make weapons out of them. So that's how it really started. But then I had to think, well, why would somebody do that? And then, you know, so I like to write out character sheets for all my characters and kind of oh, okay. come up with, um, you know, who they are, what they want, where they're going, how they're going to get there, how they interact with other people or creatures within that world. So I think doing that makes it more unique, I guess, because the characters aren't really like other characters out there. Yeah. Because it's just very specific to that world. And I try to build everything around that. And then, of course, you know, I have Jason. Um, you know, we have different sensibilities. We, we work great together, but I think it's because we have um, different takes on how to do things. You know, I'm a very metal guy and Jason's right. more like a Disney guy, you know. <laughs> and so you kind of see both of those influences in the book. But I think that's what makes it work. That's that kind of gives it the magic because yeah. if I had my way, it'd just be everybody would be in black and you know, um badass. But uh, <laughs> you know, with Jason's <laughs> with Jason's designs and just uh, his other sensibilities and um because he talks a lot about what he wants in the book too, we kind of try to merge those worlds. And I think um, the characters end up looking unique because of that. And, um, you know, based on what he draws and what we talk about, um, it also shapes their personalities and, 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 and their adventures. So. 
I, mean, I guess it makes perfect sense that Jason being the artist would be the light in the darkness when it comes to the story. And there is definitely a fairy tale element that I've noticed throughout by the horns. I mean, like uh, Rigby and Zosa wouldn't be as colorful if it was just your influence, right? They'd be like these really dark, more evil looking unicorns rather than these bright, colorful fantasy creatures like the way that Jason draws them. Yeah, I mean, I think I've come around to, you know, having light. Like I I like hopeful comics too, you know. I I want to explore pathos. I want to explore um, pain in the books, but um, I also look at the brighter side of it too. You know, yeah. I don't always want everything to be so so dour, but, um, you know, originally I'm not as open to like super bright colors and everything like that. But, um, you know, as the book goes along and you see these different, worlds and we have such a vast playground uh, with solitus because it's an entire continent and uh there's a lot of different landscapes and, and places that they go so you want every place to look a little bit different and, and color comes into play and you know we've been working a lot with uh andre um since we did uh, voracious and so we really trust him to do colors i think he's one of the best colorists in comics, you know, unheralded. I, I think there's a lot of colorists that win awards, but if you actually look at uh, what Andre brought to the book, the way that he's able to render and just the the way he can make things look three-dimensional, like um, most colorists don't do that in comics. Yeah, they don't I spend think that, the time on it. That's most noticeable, I think, in the third issue when you have that big um, fight against the, the warlock that had all the fire. I'm terrible at remembering names, <laughs> but the way that the fire popped in that issue was extraordinary. I've never seen it look so vibrant and it feel so real um, in a comic before. And I've seen a lot of fire effects. I've been reading comics since I was like 12, 13 years old mm-hmm. when I was in high school. And I've never quite seen anything that looked that good. And a lot of it was just from the color work. There's, mm-hmm. of course, all the line work that Jason does and all the inking that he does as well. But it's the colors that really make any kind of sort of effects like that pop out in any medium, not just comics. Um, and it's not just like the fire there is like the best example, but you have like the snow effects later on near the end of the comic as well that look just extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I just like the texture that he does on skin, you know, or hair. You know, if you look at it and you look at most comic books, it's a lot more flat, you know, or it's just like they have one layer of shadowing. You know, if you look at Andre's colors, um, there's a lot more going on in that, you know, there's just a lot more texture and, um, I don't know. He just put a lot more time into it. Uh, and unfortunately he's not, uh, on the next art, but we do have a really good colorist named Steve Cannon, who's, who's came on the book, uh, for dark earth. So. Yeah. Is there anything that you can give us like hints towards what dark earth is going to be like without spoiling anything, of course, since the first issue hasn't hit shelves yet. No, uh, first issue is supposed to come out on the 20th, but I don't think it's going to come out because I haven't gotten my comps yet. So it'll probably be delayed at least a week. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't really want to spoil it, but in the the original series, it was really about Elodie trying to get over um, the fact that her husband was trampled by unicorns. And in this next arc, she, it builds off the subplots from that initial arc where she has to kind of deal with the consequences of her actions from the first eight issues. Um, She had a lot of growth in there and a lot of characters did, 
and they come together as a team. Um, but what they do kind of reverberates into the next in the next arc. And so um, the tables are kind of turned on Elodie. So um, without saying what actually happens in the, the first arc, um, the creatures of Solithus kind of blame her for things that are that are going on because there's this uh, this blight that happens to uh, to Solithus and they have to try to figure out what's going on and why it's happening. Yeah, it makes sense with Elodie being in such a dark place that she doesn't necessarily she isn't thinking about what's going to happen next. Um, for the from the moment we meet her in the first issue, uh, all she really wants to do is uh, take revenge, and all she cares about is that sense of vengeance she doesn't really thinking about what she's going to do afterwards because it's possible that she's she might have originally hoped that she'd die trying to accomplish her task of killing all the unicorn (laughs) yeah Um, yeah that's true i don't think at that point she didn't really care she just wanted to feel better she wanted to do something because she felt powerless for what happened to her husband shintara um she wasn't there when it happened and she she kind of blames herself for not being there. She kind of blames herself for everything that, that happened to him. And um, she just wants to be able to fix it. She wants to be able to do something and uh, at any cost, she doesn't really think about the, anything else at first, of course. Yeah. And then that of course changes once she realizes that not everything is as it seems it's, she realizes that the outside world is a lot bigger than just her limited view by meeting all of the rest of our main cast, by meeting Evelyn, mm-hmm. meeting Zoso, meeting Rigby, not realizing, like realizing that all these characters that she thought would be evil or malicious are the exact opposite of what she thought they would be. Yeah. And I don't even think she cared. She just knows that something happened and she doesn't even think about it. She's like, I have to do this. She's just not even interested in, in investigating really like, what went on at that point she's just she's running on emotion yeah uh, because she doesn't really have a whole lot left without uh shentaro there she doesn't have a whole lot in her mind to live for anymore because she doesn't think there's any hope of him coming back he might as well be dead to her at the beginning of the story Mm -hmm. right with the way that she feels about him right yeah so it's it's exciting seeing a character that starts at such a low point that then grows and warns and becomes more hopeful because of the people around her over the course of the story. Um, I love stories like that in general in fiction. Um, my Everyone that listens to the podcast knows I'm a huge, huge ReZero fan, and ReZero is like the epitome of that. It's a dark fantasy story about a character that uh, wants to be the hero without actually doing any of the work to get there. And so right. he constantly has to regress as a character or to be taught lessons that I need to rely on others. I can't just do everything myself. And I feel like right. Elodie embodies that really well too. Yeah. Well, she doesn't, she doesn't care about being a hero. She just, she wants to just get revenge, but she, she cares about certain people and certain characters and like Sajin. So, you know, when they find out there's something going on and, you know, the entire continent's in jeopardy and Sajin's like, I, I might be the last of my kind. Maybe they've got more of, of my uh, a wolf kind, these wizards, because they have magic. Because the wizards are extracting magic from all the different creatures on the, on the, on the continent. So, you know, I think that is like, um, 
how Elodie kind of shifts in her thinking because she might not have done that before, but um, she's really using the unicorns to try to get what she wants. But over time, you know, the priorities change. Would you say that Saiyan is more of a traditional hero when it comes to by the horns writing? Sajin, yeah. I mean, Sajin's like the voice of reason in the in the book. I think that um Shintaro's a really good man and raised a Sajin. And so he's always trying to, to think from that perspective. Elodie, um you see in issue six, you kind of, you see their, their, the relationship between Elodie and Shintaro and Sajin's there. And uh, Elodie's always kind of a, a hothead. You know, she, she's always kind of like um, action oriented. Shintaro is, uh, is more thoughtful. He's just a more caring. And I think Sajin picked up on that. So as he's growing up and of course he misses Shintaro, um, but he also doesn't want Elodie to, get in trouble he doesn't want elodie to suffer the same fate or get hurt and so he's just a little bit more mindful of everything that's going around um so i always wanted to play him that way originally um he wasn't even going to talk but i needed him to talk because i wanted him to be that voice of reason i wanted him to be there when elodie was ready to go too far and she could kind of pull him pull her back so um yeah, he's he is kind of a hero in the in the uh, book, more of a traditional hero. You know, he he tries to do the right thing every time. Um, although he is on the same mission of revenge, but I think it's more out of uh, love and and respect for Elodie than it is for um, wanting revenge for Shintaro, because he feels like Shintaro wouldn't wouldn't want him to do that. Where do you think the story would have gone if Sejin wasn't there to make sure Elodie stayed on the right path? Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that she would be the same. I think she would probably end up dying early on, I think, because she goes out and fights monsters. It's kind of like in an RPG, like we were talking about earlier, when she would wander out, you know, you take an RPG, your character, you wander out to, to build up like hit points and stuff like that. And, and so you can buy more weapons and everything. And you just wait for monsters to come after you that's what she was doing. And uh, I think she would just keep doing that over and over uh, and eventually probably succumb to um, those forces out in the field. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't think she would have been able to accomplish her goal without Sajin. I think he's pretty much a, a essential to um, her development um, and her mission in the beginning and to try to get her off course. Cause he does that throughout the book. So she would have tried to find the unicorns. I don't know if she would have been able to do it without without him by her uh, by her side. So, yeah. And the two characters that we haven't talked a whole lot about are Zoso and Rigby. And as unicorns, you have like you have the risk of making them feel like maybe a little too righteous. Like you want to make them all good, right? That's how most people view unicorns. They're these mythical all perfect beasts that can usually cure all illness or all powerful. But that isn't really the feel I get from Zoso and Rigby and by the horns. They still feel, even though they're not human, they feel as human as a character like Elodie does. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I wanted. I didn't want them to be, I want to have a different take on the unicorns. You know, the main pitch when people read it, you think that the unicorns are, are evil. 
right away. And, and you find out they're not that, but they're also not all this goodness and light. You know, they're just kind of like um, people, you know, there's, they're average people who are trying to uh, live their lives and uh, they're actually pretty good people, good unicorns as well. And, um, you know, they have different personalities and I wanted to have Zoso be more um, apprehensive uh, about the world and, and unsure. And by the end of the, of the book, he, he kind of comes into his own and Rigby was more um, confident. You know, she had uh, more, more wisdom and uh, just made better decisions and, and stood up for herself. And uh, so I wanted to have that contrast in there. And uh, they're both a little bit naive, I think, because they're also um, on a different continent. They don't, they're not from Salathis. So they're kind of trying to figure their, their way through it. And they believe in Elodie because of what happens in the second issue when she accidentally frees them after fighting the wizard. So I wanted to play off of that part of it, you know, and um, the other thing I really liked about it is, uh, you know, the other characters in there, Sajin and Evelyn, you see them really kind of um, having relationships with the unicorns, whereas Elodie doesn't at first. And, um, but Elodie kind of warms up to that as, as the book goes along. You actually, there's like a one part in the, I think it's like issue five, um, where Evelyn and uh, Zoso are talking and uh, you see Elodie in the background watching, watching them. So she's seeing how um, people she cares about are interacting with the unicorns and, and having these relationships and that, that affects her over time. Yeah, I think with Zoso and Rigby, um, how I look at it is it's, there are two characters where one seems to be further along in their emotional journey because Rigby, as you mentioned, is a lot more mature, makes a lot more of the right decisions and is a lot more well-rounded as a character than Zoso is, where Zoso is a lot more cowardly and often is afraid to make the right decision, even though he mm -hmm. knows he has the power to. And I think the best decision that you could have made in the story was to rip them apart. That way you force Zoso to grow in order to match that kind of maturity that Rigby has, because he now feels like something is missing without Rigby there. That's exactly right. And that's, that's why I do these character sheets because um, I have this character Zoso and I want him to have a journey um, from beginning to end. And what, what is that? Like, how does he grow? And, and you see that and you can't really have that um, unless uh, Rigby has gone because he defers to Rigby. Like he follows Rigby, but now that she, she gets taken from him, he has to make choices on his own. Um, especially when he finds out about the, the secret that Elodie has. And um, so, yeah, I really liked that part of it too. I, I was really happy with how it culminates in the, uh, the final issue, especially for Zoso, because that's really um, his issue. I mean, it starts, it starts, the whole book starts with him lying on the ground and you don't know what's going to happen. And then it, and it goes back and, uh, and time. And then you have to get to that point. So that was actually a challenge to do. Yeah. And there was a point where I actually was going to kill Rigby. I was going to kill Rigby. Well, I was, I debated about it. I told Jason, but Jason didn't want me to do it. And so. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Cause I, I don't, I don't know. I felt like 
you know, because Zosa was so intertwined with Rigby that he followed her so not blindly, but just respected her so much and and would defer to her that uh, it would have a great impact on him. But I think I needed that hope. So I ultimately obviously decided not to, but um, I think I needed that hope in the book um, for Zoso to, to get, to get Rigby back, you know, and, and um, you know, just uh, something happier, sunnier. Yeah, no, there definitely is a place for, because it, it seems, as you described it, it kind of seems a little similar to the, the death of the mentor trope that we see in a lot of fantasy storytelling where usually you have, in this case, Zoso would be seen as the hero here who loses his mentor figure, which would be Rigby, in order to propel his character further and to have that growing moment. But there's an equally interesting story in keeping the mentor alive and seeing the, how the two of them will interact now that the other has grown so much. And I'm interested to see right. how that will be in going into the second volume, because I assume that we're going to see them again, <laughs> even though they don't appear on the yeah. cover of the next issue yeah they're not uh they don't start in the book but you you will see them again and yes um that was interesting to me too is like i don't need to kill rigby because there's other stories i can have with it and um um, and their interactions because they're more equal after what zoso does um in issue eight um they're they're more on equal footing and you'll see you'll see that for sure i think they show up in issue three like three of Dark Earth. Yeah, and I know that Dark Earth was a little bit of a surprise for you, right? Because you didn't know that By the Horns was going to get picked up to be a continuing series. You, did you think it was just going to be the first date? Did you have plans for more after that, even if it didn't mm-hmm. get picked up? Uh, well, <laughs> the thing of it is, is that with Voracious, we had the same issue because that one we actually planned as a long form series but we didn't actually know if we were going to be able to complete that book and luckily like people um kept finding it and we were able to do the three volumes but so for this book i kind of designed it as a mini series and it was only supposed to be five issues actually so um but as the book went along and uh we saw that the the reception for it was really good. People seemed to really dig the characters and the world and um, the sales were good. Um, of course we had other ideas for it. So ended up um, extending it uh, because we were ahead on the book. And I was like, well, if we want to continue this, we're going to need more issues to see what's going to happen next. And so we talked to Scout and they were all on board for continuing the series. And so we ended up adding more issues, three more issues actually. Yeah. And how, um, which is great. How much did you communicate with um, editorial while working on by the horns and what type of messages and feedback did you get back from them? Because when, when I'm talking with my editors, um, it seems to usually be kind of a cliff notes type relationship where we'll give, I'll sit in my work and they'll give me a note back saying, like maybe I need to expand upon this a little more. What was it like with editorial and by the horns? I don't, I mean, I don't have a editorial like that. So I, we just do the book and then um, we send it out. We had an editor on it in name, but didn't, didn't really do anything. Didn't really uh, give us notes at the beginning. And now um, 
Nicole is our editor and she actually does more, a lot more. She's great. So she actually goes through the book and like copy edits and every once in a while she might like make a note about something. Um, but I don't think I've ever changed anything in the book as far as the, the content goes. Um, the copy editing is really helpful. I am an editor, but um, you know, I, I hate having to worry about doing all the copy editing and all that. And so she, she takes care of that. And um, she's kind of like, um, she kind of like manages the book because she'll tell us like all the deadlines and, and, and things like that. And um, if we have any questions, we just ask Nicole and she always gets us the information for it. Um, but as far as story goes, I haven't had, I haven't had any notes on, on story, you know, it's just, it's really all from my brain and Jason's brain. And then, you know, we get it down and, and now we're even doing our own production on it too. So um, we're very, um, we spent a, a lot of time crafting the book. So um, I don't know that anybody's going to pay as close attention to everything as Jason and I do. I, I don't know that um creators are as involved in their uh, books as we are. Um, we try to make everything as perfect as, as we can. You know, we, we, we put a lot of extra effort into it. Like even the logo, we do a different logo every issue. Um, so yeah, it's been great working with Scott. I really like Nicole. Um, but yeah, it's not like I have to turn in a script and they go over it and give me notes. And I don't think I would want to do that anyways, to be honest with you. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely seems like it gives you more freedom, right, with the, what you're writing. Um, and I feel like that's something you get from doing most independent books outside of, like, maybe the big two. But yeah. with Scout, I mean, I hadn't read, I didn't even know about Scout comics before picking up By the Horse. Oh, wow. Um, because I think my local comic book store here had picked up a bunch of first issues from Scout around the same time By the Horns had come out. So I, I literally walked and this was during COVID. So they had their um, way out on the front window of their store. So you could just walk up and point at the comic. And they would just hand right, it right. and pay, give the cash back. That way you don't have to actually walk into the store. Um, and well, I Scott, still, like, it was, it's funny because I remember we pitched, we pitched by the horns. They didn't have that many books out. Yeah. You know, it was, we got the book in and then all of a sudden, you know, we're working on it and we're building towards that first issue launch and, and Scout just has all these different initiatives that they're doing, all these new books that are coming out, um, um, just really innovative, creative ideas uh, at that publisher just started blossoming around the time that we got in. So it was pretty exciting. I kind of, Scout was always my first choice because I saw a little bit of that, but I wasn't prepared for how much that they were going to grow like right away as soon as we got the book in there. So it is kind of exciting to be there on the front lines as, as Scout, like, I don't know, becomes this bigger, just more prominent company in comics. Yeah, no, it's, it's been very exciting. I've definitely, oh man, I've read so many of Scout's titles now it, and each one feels as special as By the Horns does, which is wild. I can't think of another publisher other than maybe Image that's kind of like that where you get a lot of creative license with the titles that are coming out, they feel like something you couldn't get from any other writer. It's not mm -hmm. just by the horns. And that's spectacular. Um, I yeah, wish every I comic it. could be like that. 
Yeah. I mean, I think the creativity at Scout is really at a high level, just so many different kinds of books and different voices, um, different art. Um, I, I feel like you, you are getting um, just like a, a smorgasbord of, of, of different comics there. It's not, as they're not all the same. You're, you're going to find something you like or something weird that you didn't expect to like at Scout for sure. Yeah. And they definitely don't have a, a short amount or a small amount of weirdness going around. <laughs> if you think that by the horns is the weirdest book that Scout has, uh, I would beg to second guess yourself because <laughs> there is a lot of weird going around and all of it is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think our concepts are weird. I always feel like my concept for a book is weird, you know, but then when you read the book, it's always grounded in very um, human characters, even if they're not human, yeah. you know, I think characters you can identify with. And so I think that even though the premise is a little bit offbeat, the, the world and the, and the characters who inhabit it, you, you can definitely relate to them. Well, hopefully you can relate to them. Yeah, the characters in By the Horns all look over the top, but they definitely all have personalities that feel like I could know this person. This yeah. could be someone that I've talked to in class when I was in college, or I could like see in my workplace any day. And that's wild. Um, it's... That is certainly not common because usually in a lot of um, stories where you see like over top characters with over the top designs, they have personalities that kind of match that. Um, I think of things like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure when I look at that because all those characters are very overtly flamboyant and feel overtly flamboyant. Um, and there isn't really anyone that I can be like, yeah, I know a person like that because they all are kind of extremes with personalities. But By the Horns doesn't have that. Um, there are definitely points where the characters will go into like maybe um, overexpressive modes, especially um, Evelyn definitely has a lot more overexpressive parts of her character that maybe feel a little over the top in places. But it's yeah, well, that's my design that you see in a lot of like <laughs> in a lot of uh, more cartoony stories. Mm -hmm. Well, Evelyn, she's like an emoticon for everything yeah. that's going on. So she is she doesn't know a lot about the world. You know, she's very naive. She's kind of been sheltered in this castle, this tree castle for years and years. So she doesn't know a lot about what's going on. So everything to her is like wide-eyed surprise. And, um, but also, yeah. But also it's like when other characters feel an emotion or show an emotion, you'll see her in the background and she'll be expressing like over the top. So you see exactly how everybody's feeling through Evelyn. And, um, you know, that's something Jason really uh, developed uh, with her because, you know, I give him weird things like, yeah, she's going to be this floating eyeball with all these crazy tentacles and, you know, and you've got to make her sad. You got to make her, you know, angry. And he's like, how do I, how do I go about doing this? And he nailed it. He does it every time. I, I don't know how, but you know exactly how Evelyn feels whenever you look at her. And um, or how the scene, how the, the the feeling of the entire scene is just just looking at her uh, in it. So she's great for for giving uh, um, for tone and just like emotion. Lo I love, love that character. Yeah. I mean, eyes are a big part of how you show emotion in any in any art form. Um, I know in manga and anime, they almost always make the eyes super large because that's where most of the emotion is conveyed. And mm -hmm. since Evelyn is only I, 
it only makes sense for her to be the most emotive of the of any of the characters in the comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she has to be over the top because she doesn't. I mean, she doesn't have a mouth. You know what I mean? She doesn't even have eyebrows. <laughs> you know what I mean? She doesn't have. She's just an eye with with tentacles. So there's no. She has to kind of be over the top, exaggerated, so you know exactly uh, what she's feeling. Yeah, and Jason is exceptional at um, at facial art. Uh, mm-hmm. You look at, especially the sixth issue, which doesn't have any dialogue at all, and it is, has to be carried so hard by what Jason is doing um, with the art. And because of that, you have to convey all of the emotion, all of the story just through the faces alone, which he was always good at before that issue. But issue six just makes it very clear that, that is his strong suit. That is definitively the thing he's best at as an artist. And I think that that's definitely what makes all the characters feel so sympathetic because you can always tell what they're feeling because of the way he draws their faces mm-hmm. yeah i mean uh, and that's why we did issue six i mean um that whole issue that was one of the issues that wasn't supposed to be in the original miniseries but i dreamt the whole thing and i uh, every night for i don't know how long a couple of weeks and i just kind of wrote it in my dreams and I knew it had to be a silent issue. Um, there are like three words in it, but Sajin is telepathic. So technically no words are actually spoken in it. Um, but I knew Jason could pull it off. Like I wouldn't even try to do a, a silent issue like that um, if, if Jason couldn't do that. But I, I know he can because I've seen him do it uh, many times before. I remember when we started our journey as creators, and we did voracious. We did this ash can called Cretaceous. And it was this black and white ash can that we used to kind of give to publishers to try to, to pitch the book. And it was wordy as hell. And, um, you know, I didn't need to do all that stuff. We retooled it and, uh, you know, scaled it back. And I realized that I could do a lot more by just having Jason convey those emotions. So I don't, you know, whenever I can get away with it, uh, I just let Jason do the the heavy lifting on that part because um, you know I can just get bogged down in conversation um, and it's not necessary. You can look at his artwork and see exactly you know what's happening. His storytelling, especially in six, is is it's perfect. You know you know exactly what's happening, exactly what everybody's feeling, and that's so vital to that issue because it's the issue where you 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 find out how Elodie and Shintaro met. And um, so, yeah, I think that was uh, a real career achievement for us thus far. It was definitely issue. my favorite issue in the series. I can't imagine what with like not having it because that <laughs> week especially was such an amazing week for comics. And I remember like picking up my, everything I had gotten that week and it was like literally, I think I rated like three comics in a row, a 10 out of 10, which I almost never do. That never happened. And by the horns was the last one I picked up. I'm like, oh, man, am I about to do this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I know I was, uh, I do love that issue. I really love eight too. I I just, the way everything comes back around um, and the the dialogue that that Zoso has in that, like um, the way it wraps up, I really think that was a high point for us i think it's probably our best issue overall actually issue eight um because 
you know, I knew how it was going to end, but getting there and being able to put it together at the very end. And that way, I, I didn't think, I didn't know that we'd come out uh, as good as it did. So I yeah. was really proud of that one. I was, I was a little overtly quick critical of issue eight when I first read it. But then when I, when I got the trade, like last week, I read through it front to back. I was like, oh my God, this fits, this fits so much better reading the whole thing all at once. <laughs> rather than just rather than month to month because i can see all of the pieces like fitting together so perfectly and that's part of the reason why i usually prefer picking up trades because i can <laughs> get the whole thing at once and i can see where the story is going to oh go yeah and yeah and i mean that's always kind of the issue with the reviews i think is because they'll review some somebody will review something in the beginning and they think they know where it's going to go or they think that you're leaving something out and then you you don't actually do that you know with my books like almost every single piece matters in the book. I don't really waste space. Like even stuff that you might've thought um, wasn't super significant in that first volume might come back around in the second volume. Yeah. How so, you, you said that you do a bunch of character sheets. Does that, how mm-hmm. much does that help you when trying to connect all the pieces together and, and do like those heavy foreshadowing and earlier issues that then kind of come back so heavily and by the end? Yeah, I know it helps tremendously. Um, I, I usually write the character sheets and then I don't go back to them. Because once I write them, I understand where the characters are going and that they're just in my mind. It's like I crystallize it by writing it down. Um, but I always have them if I need to go back and do that. So um, like for instance, for issue eight, like I knew right away that Zoso was going to narrate it because he narrates the very first page of the very first issue. And um, I wanted to bring it right back around to that. So that was a real achievement for me, but um, I knew where that character was going to go. Um, so yeah, the, the character sheets are great. I just don't use them that much, but the process of putting them together is what makes me understand every single character. Yeah, and, I um, I did, what was it? It was December or January of last year. I literally did a whole article where I discussed the way that um, writers use character sheets, because I think it's in Hirohiko, the creator of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Hirohiko Araki, literally detailed the character sheets that he makes for JoJo's in his book. And mm-hmm. I've used that and kind of tried to look at whether or not creators use that. And I could kind of tell from just the first issue of By the Horns that you probably used character sheets just from the way that all of these characters design them, uh, especially once we got more and more about Zoso it made so much sense to me. I'm like, he has to do this, right? Because it just feels too perfect. Because I've noticed in a lot of stories um, that I've been reading, especially Western ones, you usually don't get a whole lot of things coming as full circle. You get things like Lord of the Rings, where a lot of the the full circle like story elements were done by complete accident because he didn't know where the story was going when he first started writing it. He was just mm-hmm. writing the right and right and right. And then it eventually found itself in the writing. Um, but it's, I find it way more interesting when I see a writer that like planned where all the characters' journeys were going to be and then the story unfolds yeah. from there. Yeah, I mean, I always like to plan it out for the character beats, but also the entire story. So I know what the beginning and end is really solidly. And then I have, of course, like a, a layout of, 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 of what's going to happen in the middle. You know, I have a lot of beats written out, but sometimes that changes because sometimes you're writing it and, you know, you want to move stuff around or you feel like you have to give a little bit more, more energy to, to a certain character. 
um, and an issue before you plan to. So I kind of leave that a little bit open. You know, I wouldn't say it's loose because I definitely do a lot of planning for it, but definitely the middle parts change. Um, but doing the the final issue of the first arc of By the Horns, I mean, that was a challenge because you kind of, I pigeonholed myself because I did that first page. So you know already what the last part's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to work it. I had to work all that out. I had to know what was going to happen in the end. But even, even though I knew how it was going to go and that issue, I still rewrote that issue six times. And I've never, ever rewritten an issue that much. I don't even think I've ever rewritten an issue. I may rewrite parts, but I've never gone back to actually redo the whole thing again. Um, so that's why I think I'm like most proud of that one. I think it just like um, is a great ending to the to the first volume, and um, it's because I put the time into it. And of course, Jason's artwork is, is just phenomenal. He's the one who wanted to do the um, the double page spreads uh, vertically which I think uh, is awesome. It looks great in the book. Yeah, no, it ended up looking amazing. Um, one last question to end off with, why comics over any other medium for this story? Why do you, why do you think comic books were for you when it came to you as a writer? And why do you, why do you want to work in them over any other medium? I mean, I love, I mean, I've been reading comics since a, I mean, I'm a fan first. I don't even think of myself as a comic book writer, to be honest with you. I really just think of myself as a comic book fan who just got lucky enough to do some stories. Um, I don't think my stories work in any other medium. I, they're comic book stories. You know, um, if you look at Voracious or By the Horns, like that, either of those things would be really hard to translate, I think, into a film or a television show because just the elements, the, the detail, the, the character design, it would just, it would take a lot of work. So that's what I've always liked about comic books. You can do anything with words and pictures and you can't say that with, with every single other medium. So that's what I like when I write comics, when I write scripts, stories, um, I want it to be a comic book. I know I can do anything that I want with it. I'm not limited by anything. And I never think about, um, you know, my stories in terms of, oh, could this be something else? Never. I always just think this is a comic. I'm going to put everything in it that's going to make it a great story. You know, if something ever came of it and um, it could be translated in another medium, you know, sure, I might be interested in that, but I don't think you can tell a story as bombastic or, or appealing or as crazy as you can in comics. It's just, to me, it's like the, the perfect uh, storytelling medium. All right. Well, it's been awesome having you on, Marquise. And where can people find your work? Where can people pick up Voracious and Buy the Horns at? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I have a website. It's uh, marcasan.com, M-A-R-K-I-S-A-N. And, um, you know, I have a store there. You can pick up stuff. Um, you know, you can go to Scout's website. They've, they've got uh, all the books and other, other cool merchandise for um, By the Horns. Uh, you can uh, follow By the Horns on all social media. It's a By the Horns comic on uh, Twitter uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, I am, um, 
Darth San on Twitter and Darth Marcus on, on Instagram. Yeah, no. And again, like if you want, like, please pick up by the horns. It is straight up one of the best fantasy comics I've ever read. It's amazing. I can't give it any higher regards. I'm not just saying that because my name is on the back <laughs> of the trade. <laughs> all right. You did make it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Thanks for all the great reviews. Uh, I mean, you could revise eight a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I mean, so that's just where my mind was. And to be fair, it, like, I read that right after I finished college. Like I literally graduated that week and maybe mm-hmm. I was just over, I was just overly taxed because of all the did, <laughs> but that's just what happens. But I'm, a, I'm at least planning to do an article analyzing the trade because there's a lot of writing stuff I want to talk about. With that. Right. I haven't done an analysis article on a comic in like six months and I've been wanting to get back into it. So hopefully well, I'll have something do it, but I mean, There's a lot of, a lot of that by the horns would be a good one for that. I think I, I love layering my comic books. So I don't know if it always gets appreciated, you know, uh, I, I think well, a lot of reviewers did pick up on it, which was cool. And our reviews have been really great for the most part. So, um, you know, getting out a lot of best of list was really cool too. But, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time just layering the characters and the, the journey and stuff too. So it would kind of be interested to see if people actually picked up on all of the different threads that, uh, that go on and, uh, and by the horns. Bracious was like that too. It's very layered. So, but I, that's how I try to write. I try to layer stuff, but still have it be a really cool action adventure. So even if you don't pick up on that stuff, you're still getting the fun parts of it, you know? Right. It's a lot more work for me, but that's what I, that's what I like. I I like, like for me it. as a reader, it hits everything I want it to do. So <laughs> I'm just <laughs> Good, happy man. enough to be like maybe the perfect audience member for by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, pick up, pick up dark earth when it comes out. I, I absolutely will. And everyone should, again, by the horns is fantastic. Everyone should be reading it, but not everyone knows about it. So mm-hmm. and that, that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah, man. Like that's, uh, that's always the challenge uh, when you're an indie creator and there's so many comic books out there, you know, but I think we really have something uh, pretty unique and in, in by the horns. If you like sci-fi fantasy for you, just like, you know, really good characters um, and seeing, watching them grow and interact with each other. And if, if you like hugs, there's hugs in it. Yeah, no, um, it's, yeah, it, again, it just, it hits everything and there's not a whole lot of comics that do that. Um, but that'll of course wrap up this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, for me, again, like I planning on writing something for By the Horns soon. Uh, I also am currently covering Moon Knight every week on Twitter, and we'll hopefully have a review out for that, as well as all the anime that I've watched in winter season, because I've watched a lot. I had to drop a lot of shows, because I just don't have time. <laughs> um, so I'll hopefully have a lot of reviews out, as well as I finally watched um, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and that movie is spectacular. Legit, if it doesn't get nominated for Best Picture, I'll be upset this oh, year, because it I is just see that. that good. Um, I had a friend pay for my ticket to go see it because he had accidentally gotten um, two tickets instead of one. So he mm-hmm. had me pay for concessions. And I got my ticket for free. So, uh, and that may have biased my view on the movie, but it's still absolutely <laughs> exceptional. I think um, I might go see that in the show or the theater next week. 
I want to see that Northman movie too. Ah, oh, yeah, from Robert Eggers. Uh, he's, yeah. so, he's such a good director. I love The Lighthouse. Yeah, Definitely one of my favorites back in 2019. I, was, I used to go to the movies every week before COVID happened. I missed doing I that. I did too. I, I would go to the very first showing by myself, usually an indie film, and there'd be like a couple old ladies in there and me, and it was great. I always loved that, but uh, yeah, I haven't done it as much. Yeah, it's... I'm I'm grateful that I've been able to go back to the theater. I'm I'm young, so I have less of a chance of um, catch. Why if I do catch COVID, yeah. it won't affect me as much. So I'm 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 lucky that I'm young enough that I can still do that. But oh, yeah, I thought you were like way older. No, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why. <laughs> I thought you were like sixty or something. <laughs> no, I'm weird. Legit, I, I, mean, I started I never... reviewing comics because my my uh, my co-host, who is also my editor. Um, I, he was my roommate my sophomore year of college and he's a journalism major and he, we argued about comics and entertainment and movies and all that and, he, and we started getting so heated that he was like dude you should write about this stuff because you love it obviously <laughs> and I'm like okay sure and then I wrote about like I think I did a review of Uncut Gems that is really horrible to look at now <laughs> and then i started reviewing anime after that and found my footing and then when he got his own website i could finally start reviewing comics and i originally was supposed to put a comic book article out each week but then school happened and that started not being the case you know what i think it is i think use your your picture on twitter you're with somebody else oh uh, yeah that's with steve bloom yeah i <laughs> yeah, think i thought you were steve bloom, steve bloom. <laughs> I've had a lot of people think that like that's my dad, or I'm like, I wish Steve Bloom was my dad. That'd be think... cool to have Spike Spiegel as my dad. <laughs> but I think I thought that was you. So yeah, it's that, that was a surprise. Pretty cool though. Yeah. Well, no. Again, like thanks for thanks for coming on, man. This has been awesome. Yeah, sure. And yeah, ho- again, next week we'll hopefully have another episode. We'll be back to normal. So if anyone doesn't want to hear heated discussions about comics. <laughs> we'll be back to normal I think maybe but yeah thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day